Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, December 23rd, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. We have a short show, a truncated show. I'm going to let you spiel all on your own for the holiday. What I want to do is I want to revisit an item that was in the news a couple days ago, and I came across the original source material. Now, Eric and Don Trump Jr. have backed off the idea that they were going to be honorary co-chairman of an event called Opening Day. Let me read to you what this event was to be. Something special happens when you step into nature. The world slows down just a bit, and you get a chance to breathe. From sea to sea, the great outdoors is one of America's greatest national treasures. And we have a responsibility to protect and preserve it. By the way, Donald Trump has just appointed several energy executives, including lately Carl Icahn, who is in a death fight with the EPA. To summarize Icahn's position, there shouldn't be one. So as part of this opening day opportunity, and again, the Trump boys have backed off, there were several donation levels. I didn't really understand. I read news reports that said that you could meet the president if you donated a million or half a million. But then I read in more detail what each donation level meant. The bald eagle donation of a million dollars. You get your private reception and photo op for 16 guests with President Donald J. Trump, four autographed guitars by an opening day performer, gilding the guitar lily, the Elite Hunters package with commemorative custom details, like a multi-day hunting excursion for four guests with Don Trump Jr. and or Eric Trump. Do you get to pick or do they? You also get 200 general admission tickets and 85 VIP guest tickets. That is That's if you are a bald eagle. But if you only go half eagle, if you are a grizzly bear, and by the way, isn't a grizzly bear cooler than being a bald eagle? I guess if Palin was in the cabinet, it would have been. So it's basically half, but there are some differences, like the private reception is with eight guests and you only get two guitars autographed by the performers. These guys, these guys got a lot of guitars in the band if they're giving it all away to the grizzly bears and the eagles. But here's the weird thing. Uh, The bald eagles were getting 85 VIP guest tickets. The grizzly bears get 45 VIP guest tickets. So it's better to buy two grizzly bear packages than one bald eagle. But then the grizzly bears get 90 general admission tickets, whereas the bald eagle gets 200 general admission tickets. Half a step down, the elk at $250,000, which gets a quarter of the stuff that the bald eagles do, except 
Again, the issue of VIP tickets, 20 VIP tickets, but 40 general admission tickets. Your general admission tickets keep suffering. And then at lower levels and with lower stuff, you get your Marlin at 100,000. Your rainbow trout at 50,000 and your wild turkey donation level at 25,000. It doesn't even include a guitar. And I suspect that the reason they have the wild turkey level is such a shameful level that no one would want to put their name on. It's like the philosophy of the least expensive bottle of wine. No one buys that. They always buy the second least expensive. So you should name it something ridiculous. You know, everyone who says, well, maybe I'll sign up for a wild turkey. Come on. Can I, can I upsell you to the rainbow trout, that proud and beautiful rainbow trout? Do you really want to be a wild turkey? Again, the Trump boys far away. They will not be soliciting any grizzlies, marlins, or wild turkey. Now, on the show today, we have a special show. The Panoply series Life After was supposed to spool out week after week, but fans got crazed. So what they did, you know this if you're a listener, is they dropped an episode a week culminating today. We have an interview right now with Mac Rogers, the writer of Life After, the new serialized series from Panoply and the GE Theater. And you can get all of those episodes. They're available now in iTunes. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Radio drama is a genre that is both being reinvented and making a comeback, yet if you know the field, it never really went away. What happened is podcasts, so Limetown, Homecoming, and the Panoply Network and GE Podcast Theater's own Life After, which is the second in a sci-fi-ish series uh, following up the success of The Message. That was Panoply's podcast in year one. Mac Rogers is the writer. We're going to talk about... uh, the genre of drama podcasts and drama on the radio. Hello, Mac. How are you? 
Uh, very well. Thanks for having me on. So do we say playwright, screenwriter, pod writer? Is there an actual job description <laughs> that gets at what you do? <laughs> I, I, I call myself an audio dramatist because oh, that's, uh, that's, the, that's the best one I can think of. Yeah, because we could just say writer, but if there are designations for playwright, which you are also, right? That's right, yeah. Right. And screenwriter, I don't know if you've mm-hmm. dabbled in that. Done a bit, yeah. Yes. So th- the reason that they have a different title for screenwriter and playwright is they're slightly different things, or probably when you're inside it, massively different things. So I'll ask you this. Do you listen to a lot of the BBC radio dramas? Are you familiar with them? Yes. Uh, a couple years ago, I discovered that um, there's an app you can actually get, uh, that uh, a BBC Radio 4 uh, drama app that gives you a new uh, play every Friday. Uh, that you know Because they generate just an enormous amount of, of audio drama on, the, on BBC Radio 3 and BBC Radio 4. So I listen to a lot of uh, uh, of radio drama there. Um, as a as a as a big Doctor Who fan, I used to actually do the Doctor Who podcast here at, uh, at Panoply. That that show, um, the previous actors who used to do it, you know, they're not young enough to do the show anymore, but they can do it by audio because their voices still sounds kind of alike. Oh, so I, I that was sort of my gateway drug into audio drama was being a big Doctor Who fan. I would I would I would get some of those audio adventures featuring actors who had done the roles in in decades gone by, um, and discovered you know. It is very exciting to walk around, do your stuff, do your chores, your commute, whatever, and have the pictures all play out in your head. Uh, uh, let your mind fill in the rest. I, I find that a thrilling experience. So that's my question. Is there a big difference between how uh, American or what the American podcasters are doing with audio drama and how the British do it in that the British audience is used to the form. They probably don't need a lot of hand-holding. <laughs> they don't need to be as explicit as I'm hearing, especially in uh, season one or even two or three years ago in the American. American version of audio drama. Uh-huh. Well, I, I think I think there's sort of two factors at play. One, I've been sort of isolated by from by the sort of the specific nature of the message in Life After, which is that um, most podcast drama in the United States now does need to figure out a way to make room for sponsor messages, mm-hmm. which which the BBC radio drama typically doesn't have to do. So people have tended to have to, have to find ways of getting creative with that. Whether that's a character from the show coming on and, and talking about whatever the sponsor product or service is in a way that's tied into the fictional plot of the show, whether it's the show writer comes on and talks about that stuff, that's sort of. But an also, ongo- you have to organize yourself around act breaks. I mean, the fact exactly, that you needed, yeah. you needed uh, commercials defined what sitcoms were, defined what uh, hour-long dramas were. Yeah. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, and I think too the fact that. Um, so much of the um, the early successes of the form uh, and what I, again, think of as the gateway to get Americans interested in radio drama has been not so much straightforward radio drama, but faux podcasts, mm. fictional shows that sound as if they are real podcasts that sort of pull the, you know, the Blair Witch, uh, Orson Welles, War of yeah. the Worlds type thing, which, which, of course, the message specifically was designed right. to be. So Serial's popular. We have a protagonist who maybe is a journalist or someone on a journey, but they talk to the audience audience. There's the voicemail element. Mm-hmm. You know, you're always oriented each step of the way. And that was the first iteration of podcasts. That was one of the very first things yes. that they told me when uh, when they brought me on for the message with. They said, think serial with aliens. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, and definitely you see as well with things like Limetown, with things like the Black Tapes podcast, you de- you see uh, 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 lots of stories where it, it's reassuring to listeners who are used to nonfiction podcasts, which are uh, way more numerous and, and I think still largely more popular. Um, uh, the, 
it, it kind of helps sort of like gently lead them into this world of fiction by having it closely resemble the most popular form of podcasting. Yeah, and that parallels early movies, uh, maybe not so early, but in the 40s and 50s, you, it was much more likely that there would be a narrator in movies. I mean, people weren't, and also the cuts weren't as quick. We're, our ability to process the visual information, we understand the conventions of the four more, so we could go, movies now go a lot quicker. They assume the audience will be up to speed, and by and large, they're right. We'll probably see something like that with audio podcast dramas. Absolutely, yes. Savvy, savvy just keeps increasing with each yeah. generation of content. So are you mostly a sci-fi writer, or you write about that in that realm? Yes, mostly. Uh, I mean, uh, when I got into playwriting, which is what I spent most of my 20s and 30s exclusively devoted to, um, I sort of had a hard time getting started because I kind of wrote a lot of uh, sort of coming out of college and sort of being a, a self-important kind of young 20-something. I, I, um, I wrote a lot of turgid autobiographical drama, and I noticed that audiences weren't having a very nice time at my plays. Um, and I thought, well, 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 And that's insulting on two levels if it's autobiographical. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. It's not just, one, the plays are bad, two, yeah. my life's not very interesting. <laughs> um, so I thought to myself, was like, well, what, what do I have fun watching? Why don't, you know, uh, why don't I actually write this kind of stuff I enjoy? So I started trying to figure out, uh, science fiction for the stage is tricky because you don't want to just like have those like, um, those kind of like, like buggier helmets that people wear with the eyes waving back and forth. You, I mean, unless you specifically want camp, yes. but I didn't want camp. Camp's not, uh, uh, not my style as a writer. I wanted to find a way to make science fiction work on stage without camp value to actually make it work seriously. And what you find there is you have to strip away the idea of special effects and the elaborate world design and uh, uh, focus on the ideas and focus on how science fiction tropes like technological innovations or extraterrestrial arrival in some form or another, how that affects human characters. So you put the focus on the consequences. You put the focus on the characters and how they react to these like uh, paradigm shifts in their lives. Right. And so sci-fi for the stage, I mean, sci-fi does a lot of things, but of course in the movie theater, it just delivers spectacle and also builds a world. And there's an aspect to world building where if you have, especially on an IMAX screen, you could build in one shot, you could, you know, convey so much. But another great aspect of science fiction, really all fiction, is what it reveals about the human condition. And so that's what you have to concentrate on more, the small stuff. And that's pretty much somewhere in between is where the podcasts are. But they're there's not so much spectacle. What's the point of spectacle? You could do anything you want. You could explode three worlds exactly. uh, like that in an audio <laughs> form, but it doesn't really deliver much satisfaction to the audience. It's about the interplay of really what's, this is what life after is, is for me. It's about the issues of the day. We call it sci-fi. It pretty much takes place in the present, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. largely. So it's about our technological issues, anxiety around technology playing out in this fictional realm. It's good, good to be back. Wait, how are they doing this? I mean, no one's heard from Nikki in over a year. It's online, but they're not recordings. It's like something's using all of her recorded posts to recreate her voice. Hi, it's Nikki Tomlin. Let's talk. Can she hear us? Of course I can hear you. This is really weird. If someone's recreating her online, why? And more importantly, who else can they do it with? Hi, it's Nikki Tomlin, and I'm here to tell you that some voices live forever. The science of the science fiction isn't science that's advanced from what we have now. It's science that could very well exist right now. It it probably doesn't, but it might. 
Well, with both of the GE podcast uh, 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 theater shows, well, part of the idea was to basically use an existing piece of technology as the jumping off point. Right. With the message, it was the the very real, very early, very you know, um, but uh, very experimental, but 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 very real uh, treatments in using ultrasound technology to uh, uh, replace incisions as an approach to medically treating humans. With this one, it was the idea of the digital twin concept, creating a, a a virtual replica of a real piece of industrial machinery, and then running it through a bunch of simulations to see how badly it breaks down over time. So that way, you can. You can give great advice to people using the actual real-life machinery. So using that as a jumping-off point for the story, I mean, for one level, I needed to work that into the plot, like, literally. Mm-hmm. But on another level, that kind of got Why, me— Why, because is that a GE machine? Oh, yeah, just yeah. because it's like, yeah. They, they, you know, but uh, they, they, it was, it was, I was actually really amazed at how little they wanted— They wanted their stuff mentioned, yeah. but very glancingly. Yeah. Like, every, both with this one and with the message, both times the notes I would get back from GE were less. Yeah. They really didn't want to overwhelm the story. They really didn't want it to feel at all, like, oppressively like a commercial in any way. And that's good, but also there's an element to that where the, te- the technology doesn't break down in great ways for the characters or humanity. Oh, so right, yeah, yeah. Like, hey, this is GE technology <laughs> and it's breaking down and causing all these problems. That might not be great branding. Well, that's always the, the, that's always the struggle between a science fiction story and um, and uh, and a situation where you want to celebrate technological innovation in real life. Yes. We want our technology to be awesome and make our lives better. In a story, something has to go wrong with the technology. You don't have a story. So there's an inherent tension there that was a big part of like sort of figuring out how the plot would work. And then that digital twin idea was like really well suited to this story because of the idea of like taking everything that a person publicly left behind and using that to create a virtual replica of them online. So there was always a, there was a strong metaphor metaphorical resonance to the technology throughout the storytelling. Yeah, and there's also moments where uh, certainly passages that work as dialogue, but they also work as just an essayic uh, observations. Like when there's one character who's talking about uh, there was one plot point where people uh, were believed to be blackmailed, but they kind of started to sympathize with the blackmailer. And there was a long passage, a medium-length passage, about when you are unhappy and you go on social media and you see how happy everyone else is, doesn't that make you resentful? And the main character sort of identifies with that. But what that is, is just making a point about modern life. Yeah, and it's definitely something that, you know, when they had their original idea, the original idea sort of presented to me was just a very simple log line. It was, you know, uh, social media that kind of seems to bring back the presence of people who have passed away. Um, And so, and they were super cool uh, both times about really letting me run with the original idea. And I got to thinking about that. And one thing that I really thought about is, uh, you know, I started, I think I started participating in social media right around 2009, Facebook, Mm -hmm. Twitter, things like that. Um, And, you know, over time, for a little while, it was just sort of this game. It was just sort of this neat new thing that you could do on your computer. But then as time passes, you gradually realize this is a part of people's lives. They go to work, they sit down at their desk, they do this. They spend a significant amount of their lives in these social media platforms. And one of the things that happens in life, of course, is death. And uh, of course, not only people that you know on social media are are going to die, but also people you know on social media are going to lose people. And um, and there's a, when, you know, it's already an enormously difficult thing to lose someone, you know, whatever you would define as prematurely in, in, in real life where, you know, you walk around and you see other people who haven't lost people and they're there. But, but without, before social media, you were only exposed to a trickle of those people. Mm-hmm. You were only exposed to who you happen to see when you left your house or you visited some friends or whatever. You turn on Facebook, you, you lose a loved one, you turn on Facebook, 
it's a fire hose yeah. of people who are not going through what you're going through. Yeah, and the old way of death, in fact, people would retreat from the public sphere and wear black and maybe cover their mirrors and <laughs> go in mourning. And it's the opposite. People, you know, announce it. That's the number one thing you might find out on Facebook, that someone you know has died. Or, oh, my God, I, I uh, just, I never realized. So here's my last thing. As a, a consumer... Some of the voice acting to me strikes me as phony and not just in this, in all the radio dramas that I've heard. And I wonder if it's phony because it's a little different from movie acting. And when you get right down to it, movie acting is phony. Uh, it's it's different from real life. We, we think that we want uh, some version of authenticity or that's exactly like what people sound in real life. We do not. We want the movie version of that. And it's changed over time, right? What acting, what a- great acting means. But do you have any thoughts on that? Do you have any thoughts on why I hear the voice acting as more acting than I would, you know, experience movie acting or play acting. Well, I definitely love the actors in Life After. Uh, but what I will say is that in there's the some United great ones. I don't mm-hmm. mean I don't mean to be blanket about right. it, but there are moments where that thought hits me. Well, I think that there's a thing where I think um, because there's so little audio drama in the United States, I think we're going to have to uh, rebuild a tradition here because it's interesting. The advent of television basically more or less eradicated radio drama in the United States. It didn't in the UK. Actors expect to bounce between stage, radio, and television uh, throughout their careers. It's just a, just a standard expectation. Uh, American actors really don't. I mean, well, okay, a lot of a lot of actors make a steady income with voiceover work, which yes. uh, uh, um, is exactly the same thing. And then there are some actors, actually one or two of the actors on Life After had um, experience doing um, background work on films where they would provide all the voices of stuff. You wouldn't even be able to understand it, but like the actors in the background of a crowd scene. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, a colleague of mine, Laurie Prince, who's in the cast, she, she, uh, she, she just few some small roles in life after she, you know, I know she does a lot of work doing background voices on film. So uh, at one point, the director said, I want you to do an angry rant for 60 seconds. I was like, that's impossible. You can't just out of the blue ask someone to do an angry rant for 60 seconds. But she immediately went and did it. I went to her afterwards. Like, How were you able to come up with that so fast? She said, that's what I do for a living. Someone puts me in a in a film that's being edited they point at one person in the crowd and say for the next five minutes you are that person uh, we won't hear anything you say but we need that, that person to have a voice for the sound mix to sound right later on but that aside aside from very specialized work like I've just described uh, it is definitely a thing where I think we're going to need to define for ourselves what we think the audio only acting tradition is in the United States because it is a real difference in, in my writing approach because I've mostly written plays when when I write audio, it's not like, okay, you stage, you step out. It's a big, grand statement. To, you're expecting to talk to a couple hundred people, do a thing. Audio drama is seduction. Audio drama is whispering in someone's ear. Uh, uh, so to find an acting tradition that matches up with that particular kind of writing style, I think we're going to be zeroing in on it. I think we're going to be twisting the knobs yeah. and finding that for a while. Mac Rogers, he is the which which phrase do we use? Audio. No, I, I said audio dramatist. If podcasts it. really catch on and become an industry, <laughs> someone will think of something shorter to say. Mac Rogers, he is the audio dramatist behind Life After and before that, the message from a GE Podcast Theater, which is produced by Panoply, which uh, you know we share an office with them. <laughs> Thank you, Mac. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be on. Excellent. taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. 
At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. And now, I'm not going to give you a spiel, but last year, we did the 12 days of Trump miss. It started like this. On the first day of Trump, Miss the Donald gave to me a wall paid for by the Mexicans. On the second day of Trump... A cut right to the end. But as you listen to what we gave away on all days of Trump, Miss, just remember this was done in December 2015. All the crazy stuff that happened by December 2015, twice as much crazy stuff happened since then. Just yesterday, I mean... The president-elect tweeted that we should expand the nuclear arsenal, which is not a good idea, by the way. So here, we'll end with the 12th day of trump miss. We'll go backwards, and we'll think about blessings for the new year. On the 12th day of trump miss, the Donald gave to me 12 criminals, drug dealers, rapists, etc. Though I assume some are good people. Yeah, yeah, I assume. 11 angry eagles. 10 Putin endorsements. 9 Muslim databases. 8 schlongs. 7 datable daughters. 6 people who aren't captured. 5 bloody wherevers. 4 sweaty rubios. 3 celebratory Muslims. 2 low energy front runners and a wall paid for by the Mexican and that's it for today's show the gist was produced by Chris Berube and Mary Wilson the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai the chief content officer of the Panoply Network is Andy Bowers have a Merry Christmas and thanks for listening Mmm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.